You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Hello and welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange with me Arthur Parkinson and Sarah Raven. This week we're talking about the winter vegetable stall, this is the kale and the wonderful exotic annual climber Cabeus scandens, otherwise known as the cup and saucer plant. I love this time of year because it means I can sow the first properly exotic seed of the cut flower garden's year. It's the Cabea scandens, otherwise known as the cup and saucer plant, and it's a climber which Sarah introduced me to quite a while ago. It's got huge vigour and jungle-like presence in the garden, very un-English, and it comes in two colours, purple and white, and its common name, cup and saucer, is because the flower literally looks like something that belongs on the table from Alice in Wonderland. You can imagine the Mad Hatter drinking out of it. It's almost got a little saucer, and then its trumpet shape of the flower coming up from its little leaves, which give this flower such presence. And it's a climber. And unlike many fast-growing climbers, it needs quite a long time to grow and become a mature plant. So this week I'm sowing it on my windowsill, as I'm sure Sarah is at Perch Hill. Yeah, it's a funny seed, isn't it? It looks almost like a, well, a mini, mini, mini saucer. Disc. It's, yeah, sort of disc, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. And because it's from, I think, is it from Mexico? Anyway, it's from a hot climate. I think um, it must be. Yeah, and... So it rots off really easily if you overwater it because of, it's got this large surface area. So you sow it vertically, don't you? It mustn't sit flat um, mm. in the compost at all because it will then gather moisture and will rot off. So you always have to sow it like a courgette seed, actually, exactly the same, or a cucumber yeah. seed vertically into the compost. And ha- what sort of system of sowing would you use? So it becomes, as you know, a big plant quite quickly. And as I've got a small garden, I only sow a trio of cabea. And out of that trio, probably only one in the end will make it to the garden. So the other two are kind of like an insurance policy. So I'll sow the seeds singly, actually, into a a nine centimetre pot. And I won't water the compost, as you say, as long as the compost is moist to the touch, that will be enough to to activate that seed to germinate. And um, they go on the kitchen windowsill and the heat of the kitchen will help those seeds to to start. If I was growing in a greenhouse, it probably would, would be one of those seeds that would go on the heated bench or possibly in a mini propagator just to give it that heat to, to germinate. Because at first it is quite a, not a needy seedling, but it is a bit of a fragile little thing. Mm. But it very quickly germinates for me at home on the windowsill. And um, within about three weeks, those little seedlings want potting on into a slightly larger pot. And so it's treated like a little mini house plant, really. But very quickly, as you know, Sarah, it will develop those little tendrils. And those mm. tendrils are incredibly touch sensitive. If it doesn't have anything to, to grip onto, it will just attach itself like a little sucker sticker on the frame of the windowsill. So what we do both at home and at Perchill is it will get a little miniature stick wigwam out of pea sticks and it will have to stay in either the greenhouse or on the kitchen windowsill until I think the last week of May. I'd, I'd say that's probably the same mm. with you because if mm. it does get a frost at that stage, it will die, mm. which is in complete comparison to what it's like as an adult plant. And it will reach easily 
10 foot, even even in a dolly tub, which I grow in at home, it will be very happy to grow and scale almost up to your bedroom windowsill. In the end, it will reach that if it's well watered over the summer. And it was lovely to have them flowering at Christmas, actually, this year. I've definitely picked a bunch of them on Christmas Day in previous years. Actually, I didn't this year because we had really quite a hard frost on just before oh, Christmas. But I pick them and I often pick them with the tendrils as well because I love that sort of crazy shape that you get with the leaves and the tendrils as well as the flowers. And it just makes the whole arrangement look much more dynamic. But I would mm. always pick a good bunch, uh, rubber band them and, and plop them into a bucket and then bring them in. What I mean by rubber band is collecting them into a bunch and putting elastic band around that bunch because otherwise they get in a, they get in knots quite easily I find uh, and then mm. I bring them in and I would sear the stem ends for only five seconds they've got quite a soft stem but five seconds in boiling water and then into cold water into the final place where you want to arrange them and I find if you condition them like that I often get 10 days or even two weeks out of a vase do you Arthur? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't have enough to pick a bunch, but it was literally right. a case of, you know, I think there were three flowers that, that that I picked and, you know, we just had them on the, the Christmas Day table looking like something ridiculous, but at the same time, absolutely gorgeous. And it's just lovely at that time of year, isn't it, to have something that you would not, even if you could go to Covent Garden Market for Christmas Day flowers, you would not be able to find Cabea Scandens for sale. No. So, no, I do I do love them. They're incredibly exotic but at the same time happy to be in the garden we have them here on the metal arches down the central path and the cutting garden and actually what we've found is that if we mulch the plants really quite deeply so i don't know maybe six inches of dry mulch over the crown after we've cut them down in december or january we find that we can overwinter them and so they make even bigger plants and they were actually if you wow. can perennialize them like that, I've seen them growing up to 40 foot at Sissinghurst in the, on the, um, the front range of buildings at Sissinghurst. They're absolutely incredible. But we also treat them as annuals here, growing them on silver birch. And um, I know you're the king of making silver birch teepees, Arthur. T- tell, <laughs> tell us how you do that. Well, it, it was you that made me fall in love with silver birch. I remember the first photos of Perch Hill, the iconic helter-skelter wigwams that I know Cole your veg gardener and now farm manager is the best person in the world at doing. So yeah, I do make myself at this time of year or actually after Christmas, if I'm, you know, wanting a really good day of feeling invigorated, I will go out onto areas of wasteland that I've asked permission to go on to. Well, silver birch has colonised naturally. The nice thing about birch is that from a mature birch tree, it will self-seed itself often into the most rubbly, horrible dirt brownfield sites so in a town, you'll find silver birch actually much more easily than you'll find it in manicured farmland. It likes mm. rubble and annoyingly, it always self-seeds itself brilliantly along railway tracks. And I'm not going to suggest any of you go along there, but that's the kind of place that you will find it in abundance. And in the winter, of course, it's dormant and you can literally go and get yourself the most lovely bundle of all these lovely tricks, which sweet peas, cabea love to cling on to but better than that silver birch is incredibly pliable it's far more easy on the hands than willow is willow i often get in a complete rage about because it snaps very easily for me whereas silver birch you can turn into snakes and domes so you can use it for all your divulfiniums and your peony staking 
And the best thing of all, it doesn't root into the ground. Whereas if you went and put willow amongst all your herbaceous beds, you'd very quickly have a whole willow garden and it would be an absolute pain to get out. So every winter I go and pick silver birch and I know that you, your gardeners do it for you as well. There's one thing about willow, actually, just before we talk about silver birch, which is that what I find, because uh, we have loads of willow here too, is if I get a, a knife and I just take the bark off the bottom six inches of a willow stem, it can't then root down because you've removed, I think it's the xylem, and it can't then root down into the soil. So if you can't get silver birch and you can get willow, that is one way of preventing it mm. from, from rooting. But, you know, I mean, it's one of the great jobs of March here is getting the silver birch and we harvest it when the sap is rising in January and February, but before it has leafed up in March and April. So you want to yeah. try and harvest it sort of in the last bit of winter. So the sap has started rising, but that makes it pliable. But you don't want to pick it once it's in leaf because then you have to sit for hours stripping all the leaves off because once they're up in a teepee, they then look really ugly when they're dying back. So that's yeah, your ridiculous. ideal moment when the sap is rising, but the leaf is is yet to form. And the other thing about Kabea here that we found is that if you don't give it a climbing frame, it will then cascade down. So we have a building here in Sussex, which is called an oast house, which I'm sure lots of you know. It's a way of drying the hops and this whole part of East Sussex and Kent used to be the main sort of uh, market garden for hops, which would flavor beer. And what you do is you put the hops onto a balcony on the first floor and the kiln, which is the round building with the funny sort of top hat cone on top, that goes round and round. And that is the ventilation for the fire. And so the hops go on the, the floor on the ground, on the first floor, and the fire is beneath it on the ground floor. Anyway, that's what an oast house is for. We have one here, which we restored when we first came to Petchill, and it has a balcony, as they would traditionally do, uh, which is called a green stage. And we have old, uh, knackered old animal troughs on the green stage, which we plant up with really vigorous things because they've got to have impact from afar. And our favourite plant for there is cabea. Because if we plant, let's say, three in a six-foot water trough, they cascade down from the first-floor balcony and they literally will <laughs> almost reach ground level. It's incredible. So they're dropping to like 30, 30 foot down. And we here have a ground-floor bathroom. And I'm not very keen on net curtains, but so people <laughs> often feel that they have to put the blind down when they're having a bath quite rightly, because otherwise people can peer in the window. But what we found is with the Kabea, it formed a green natural net curtain. And that was just such a lovely thing. And a, a, it was a friend of mine um, who's a gardener in Cumbria who first told me that she lived on the third floor in London and had a window box with one Kabea. And when the person on the ground floor complained to her could she come and prune her clematis? <laughs> that's when she realized how vigorous Kabea was. And um, that's what got me thinking of it as a cascader as well as a climber. Anyway, probably enough on Kabea, but you can tell Arthur and I are both completely obsessed. I find the purple easier to germinate than the white. And so like Arthur said, 
if you're plant three, you may only get one. And I, I find that is definitely true of the white, less true of the purple. But don't overwater and do sow it now. That would be the sort of two things I would say. But the other thing that we are picking, not sowing now, but picking now is kale. And actually at the end of the month, we start sowing it again. But I would say for, for March, it's one of my very favorite edible plants. And we just have lots and lots of kale that it's one of the things that really reliably will produce delicious edible food throughout the winter. So from sort of October until the end of March, we're hugely relying on kale. And I grow it for eating, but you grow it because you love the look of it, don't you? Yeah, I do. And um, it's really funny, as, as you know, I go to Chatsworth House quite a lot and I love the kitchen garden there and it's managed by an amazing guy called Glenn Facia and he's got a really good Instagram account celebrating all this this veg that he grows. And um, it's the most architectural vegetable in the world, I think, kale. And I, what I love about it is it's very robust and um, it's one of those plants in the winter when you're thinking, oh, I need a winter photo. If you can get into a kitchen garden when there's a frost and you've got a good row of kale, it just looks absolutely gorgeous. And um, you you introduced me to it and I remember thinking, how can I have it in my garden? So I sow it a little bit differently to you, purely as a sort of consort to the tulips, because I find red bull kale in particular has a beautiful seaweedy dark foliage. And so I actually sow my kale very unusually at the end of July. And that's because I want it to become a sort of bonsai foliage plant that then goes on top of my bulb lasagnas. So the kale seed I'll sow at the end of July, prick them out into little nine centimetre pots, and then by November, I've got very nice little rosettes that then go on top of the pots in the dolly tubs. And I'm, I'm even fond of the little strange um, lemon pousset-like flowers that they give. And they then come when the tulips are going over. So it's the perfect filler for the garden when the garden's in that in-between stage of bulbs and summer bedding taking off. Yeah. And they look so glamorous in either rain, where you get all the sort of raindrops caught in the crinkly leaves particularly mm. of red boar but also even better in in frost because they just um they just look amazing and the reason i first got into kale actually was i was working on an island called barra in the outer hebrides uh training to be a doctor in fact training to be a gp and i remember seeing all these weird sort of stone enclosures in the middle of nowhere slightly and asking my boss what they were and thinking that they were they were probably for gathering the sheep but he said oh no no they're kale yards and apparently they're a very traditional thing often um, really quite old or 19th century but they're these enclosures just to keep the worst of the wind off the kale and in the summer uh, they grow potatoes in them and in the winter they grow kale and I would go for walks quite often there and I would find it difficult to stand up because it would be so windy on a windy day so, you know, I take my hat off to kale. It is tough as old boots, but as delicious as anything as Well, for me, it's garden caviar. It really is. And I'll come on to giving you my favorite recipe in just a minute. But, it, it, you know, it is one of those things like rhubarb that is just so tough and you can grow it anywhere. As long as it's sort of got a bit of sun and a bit of light, it will grow anywhere. And it will even grow in a pot, as you say. There's a new variety, actually, of um, like the red ball, which is your favorite which is called curly scarlet and it's actually been bred to be smaller and more compact 
for smaller gardens. And similarly, the, the black Tuscan kale, Cavallo Nero, there's a new Roman variety of, of that, which is more compact. And so there is, you know, increasingly breeding for people with smaller gardens who still want to grow kale. How I love it at this time of year is I've got a big pot of it um, and it is red ball. No, it isn't. Sorry, it's curly scarlet because it's more compact on my doorstep. And I've been picking from that throughout the winter. So I planted it in October and literally once a fortnight, I will go to the pot and pick some leaves. And if I break them off, what's amazing is it's one of the very few brassicas that will form another leaf just above the scar. And so it will, it will come back and come back, not as quickly as a salad leaf, but it will come back. And what's happening now is I underplanted those, not with tulips this time, but with hyacinths. So I've got this beautiful hyacinth just coming into flower right now in the first week of March called Anastasia. And so I've been picking from those kale leaves all the way through the winter. And now I can walk through the incredible scent of hyacinth Anastasia. So that for me is a real winner. And I must talk about another new kale, which is the flower sprout. And I sowed a packet of these in the first lockdown back in, in March. And um, they're very robust little seedlings. They grew very, very quickly. I planted them in a row in my nan's garden and very quickly forgot about them. And amazingly to me, the wood pigeons, which we've got in abundance because we're in a town, haven't touched them and neither have uh, the cabbage white butterflies. They've literally been left no horrible fruit cage needed to go on top of them, which is what I think possibly a lot of people think is needed for some kale you know that that cage over the top mm. of them which can sometimes ruin the look of a garden a small garden in particular these flower sprouts just managed on their own and I ended up with a whole row of these Christmas tree like creatures mm. and underneath each leaf was this most beautiful little miniature cabbage that I did you'll be surprised to know pick for for Christmas day lunch it didn't all come from M&S like it normally does <laughs> and we did do something with them I gave them to my mum admittedly to cook but we did harvest them, Sarah. So um, yeah. I will be growing flower sprouts again this year. Well, I'm afraid you've you've got me going now because I've got various other things I want to say. <laughs> One is that um, <laughs> the flower sprouts are, are a hybrid that have been bred between Brussels sprouts and kale. And they have the highest level of these things called glucophorins in them. And these are the most amazingly healthy compounds. They're antioxidants, which are said to sort of detox the cell, a human cell, to one of the deepest levels of anything that you can ingest. Wow. And so flower sprouts are unbelievably healthy. They're really anti-aging. They're incredibly good for you. And particularly as we're coming out of winter, that's exactly what we want to sort of make us look and feel better. So final thing that I just wanted to mention is a really good recipe which I use for both kale and for kaleettes, which is so simple and so delicious. And it's just to get um, a sort of, I don't know, uh, if you were to put your two hands together and fill them like a bowl with the kaleettes, or because kale has a biggest, you know, it's a more spread out surface area, twice that. Um, so maybe eight leaves of kale. And with the kale, you always want to strip the tough midrib out of the leaf. And then tear all the little sections of leaf up into you know bits uh, no bigger than the palm of your hand. And then obviously wash that and dry it. And then what I do is I dress it with two tablespoons of tahini, one tablespoon of soy sauce, the juice of half a lemon, 
or the juice of a lime and perhaps some zest. And sometimes I put a bit of oil in that, but often you don't need to. And then if you've got that very thick tahini, which is the Greek rather than the Palestinian tahini, it's a bit claggy and thick. So I would either loosen it with a little bit of water, actually, or some yogurt. Uh, if you have the Palestinian, you don't need to. And then you mix it all up together. And then you pour it over your kale or your kelets. And you literally massage them like you're washing your hair. And you do that for two or three minutes. And what that does is it wilts them down. But then they're really easy to digest. And they aren't like organic Brillo pads, which I think raw kale can be a bit like an organic Brillo pad. And then I top it off with avocado and some toasted pumpkin seeds. And I promise you, it's completely delicious. And I have a craving for that. Winter or summer, I have to have that at least once a week. Thanks for listening to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed Groker Eat Arrange. Next week, we're going to talk about crocus, which are looking absolutely fabulous right now. Antirhinums, snapdragons, which we're sowing now. And Swiss chard and bright lights chard, which are the queens of the veg garden at the moment. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com.